Man, it's so good to see you guys. So, uh, as you know, we started out the year, 2023, taking a look at this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. One of his students comes up to him and, uh, like a good child or a good student, says, Lord, teach us to pray. Seems to notice something about the, uh, the influence of Jesus, the depth of Jesus' relationship with his heavenly Father that is different than theirs. And so we're kind of taking uh, this first part of the year to deconstruct this thing that we've all, most of us, grown up with that uh, we're kind of over-familiar with, and that is the Lord's Prayer. And so uh, we got to the section last week, Your Kingdom Come. And what we looked at last week is this phrase, Your Kingdom Come, is a prayer of defiance. And so what I want to do is uh, just break this up into two sections. So last week set the foundation for this week. Last week was like kind of the idea behind what we're going to talk about this morning, which is when it comes to your kingdom come, what does that look like in real life living? And so this morning, uh, we're going to take a few minutes and go through what I'm calling the seven habits of highly effective Christians. Now, let me say something about this material. Uh, first of all, I'm going to go into uh, teaching mode. I'm going to wear my teaching hat this morning. So for those of you that are a little more studious, for those of you who are note takers, you'll see uh, my really basic outline of the seven points on the front of your bulletin. So if you're uh, one of those note takers, you're kind of like me, uh, you can stick this way in your Bible and take it home with you and you'll have your seven points. Uh, but it's also a great time to uh, take notes in the front of your bulletin. So if you're a note taker, today is going to light you up. Um, so I'm going to take the uh, preaching hat off, put the teaching hat on, and I differentiate that just because it's a different way for me to present material. What's odd is over the years when I preach, nobody says anything. When I teach, people are like, oh, that really meant something. So maybe... I should do this more often, and I'm going to do my best to stay in this stool the whole time. So this is kind of the second half of last week, and I just want to say this going into the material. Uh, first of all, when I talk about the seven habits of highly effective Christians, I am not insinuating that we're not all doing them. Uh, I don't want to insinuate that. What I am hoping this morning, and I hope that this is hopeful and helpful for all of us, is that as we go through these seven things, first of all, these are not the seven things. These are seven things that uh, I want you to view this morning like you and I are having a conversation over coffee. Uh, even though I talk about going into teaching mode, if we were sitting down and you were to ask me, uh, Pastor Mark, man, if I could just distill the Christian life into your experience, what are like the, the, the top seven things that have brought you where you're at today? Last weekend, last Saturday night, was my spiritual birthday, if you will. As of last Saturday night, uh, I've been a Christian for 35 years now. I gave my life to Christ at 17 years old. It's a long time ago. That was like a century, last century. And uh, so last century, when I became a Christian, uh, it was late on a Saturday night at a youth retreat and uh, last Saturday in January. And so here I am 35 years later. And like you guys, I've been through some stuff. It's not like I just picked up a Bible and then uh, here we go, it's been hunky-dory, and now we're doing church. Uh, like the rest of us, this is a fight. It's a spiritual fight. It's a mental fight. It's an emotional fight to hang on, right? Because there's so many things coming against us. My own desires, my own will, the culture around us. Um, and so if you were to sit with me and say, you know, what has been the thing that has carried you through uh, to not only keep walking with Jesus, but to keep in ministry and keep doing what you're doing, these are probably the seven things I would share with you over breakfast or over coffee. And so what I'm hoping for is this. I hope that you hear these seven things like fibers on a rope. Some of us are trying to carry life with a kite string. It's not strong enough. And you know, if you're going to carry a heavier load, 
you have to have a rope that is appropriate to carry the load with. And for some of us, we're trying to carry the heavy load of life, but our faith and the things that we've built our life on are very breakable. Relationships that could be severed, uh, substances that could let us down. And we have all these hopes in things that we think are carrying us, and they're so fragile. And what I'm hoping this morning is that you see these seven habits of things that will strengthen your faith, that they're like uh, threads to a rope that you weave together. And when you weave these seven things into your life, I really do believe they will bring strength. They'll bring mental strength, emotional strength, spiritual strength. And honestly, at the end of the day, you're going to enjoy your walk with Jesus and the ministry God's given you, I think, a whole lot more than you would have without these. And so I'm also hoping that as you maybe incorporate some of these, that hopefully you'll see that probably most of these are things you're already doing. But uh, the Holy Spirit may speak to you about an area that, you know, hey, I used to do this and I've kind of drifted away from it. I have those kind of seasons where God has to remind me, you used to do this, you drifted away from doing this, and I got to get back to some healthy habits. Or maybe it's something you've just never considered or never thought of and you think, that's something I need to incorporate in my life. And the great thing is, is that all of these things are things you can put into action before we even get to the discussion. None of it's difficult. None of it requires a, a doctorate in brain surgery, right? You don't have to be Eric Houchin to get this stuff, right? You can be Mark Leach and get this stuff. And so that's the beauty of it. Uh, super simple, super accessible. When we get to the Lord's Prayer, um, the gist of the entirety of the Lord's Prayer, and I want you to see our material this morning through this lens. Sometimes growing up, when you would hear people reference the Christian life, they'd say something like, yeah, well, there's nothing like right living, you know, as if the Christian life is all about right living without a G at the end. Right living. And it's incomplete. That what we see in the Lord's Prayer is really the essence of all of Christianity, and it's about living in right relationship. It's about living in right relationship. In other words, the Christian life uh, isn't about whether you uh, smoke, chew, or run with girls that do. That the Christian life is how you and I relate, how we relate to God, how we relate to people, how we relate to stress, how we relate to money, how we relate to time, how we relate to our blessings, how we relate to setbacks. The gospel is 110% relational. The Lord's Prayer is 110% relational. These seven habits are all habits that have to do with the people and the things around it. It's about our relationships, all right? And so what we're going to see here as we dig into the Lord's Prayer is that Jesus' kingdom is so upside down, and it's so upside down that it actually turns the world right side up as we live it out. But it turns the world right side up by turning us upside down first, but someday the tables are going to turn. And when Jesus returns, we're going to be on the right side of that table. And the upside kingdom, upside down kingdom is going to be the right side up kingdom. This is a different way to live, a different way to relate. All of it right here. And so I start with this passage that mom read for us this morning out of Ephesians 2. So let's just revisit that for just a minute. And this kind of sets the tone for everything we're talking about this morning. Paul writes to the church. He writes to you and I. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love the juxtaposition of what Paul does here. You and I aren't saved by works, but we are saved for good works. In other words, we didn't get saved so we can just die and go to heaven someday. That you and I were saved and God has a purpose for our lives. So let's jump into our material this morning. Habit number one is initiative. Taking initiative. Every parent right now wants to go get their kid out of the nursery, uh, wants to go home and say, you know, I changed my mind. You, you should come to church and hear what Pastor Mark has to say this morning. Take initiative. Initiative. Seeing what needs doing and doing it. Habit number one. Initiative. Seeing what needs doing and doing it. At 18 years old, I got my first real job. My first real job was installing phone data in PA systems in hospitals, schools, universities, churches, office warehouses. I got called into my boss's office after just a few months of the job. It was good money, and it was a solid eight to five job. And my boss sat me down, and he said, uh, Mark, the guys are complaining about you. The guys are telling me that you are just standing around the job site waiting to be told what to do. What I want you to do, Mark, I want you to start asking questions and I want you to take initiative. I really took that to heart the third time my boss sat me in his office <laughs> and explained to me that if I didn't start taking initiative, that he would fire me. Now, my boss was a fellow believer. He went to church with me, and he was trying to be patient with me, and he also wanted to see me mature and grow. But I also knew he was serious, that if you don't start doing what I have asked you to do, you are not going to work for me any longer. See, it would sever the relationship. It's all relational, isn't it? And I really did take it to heart, and I realized that, man, I am, by nature, lazy. I wait, I sit around, and I wait for somebody else to tell me what to do. And it was this, as if God was using my boss to come to me, because it wasn't just in my work, it was in everything that I did. It was as if God was saying to me, I want you to start taking ownership of things you don't even own. And if you ever want to be responsible with your own house, you got to take care of somebody else's house. If you want to be responsible with your own things, you want me to bless you with your own ministry, then you got to be responsible with somebody else's, and you first do that by taking initiative. I really believe in the years now that I've been on this planet that 90% of success in life really is initiative. Obviously, that's a made-up statistic. I don't know what the actual research numbers would be, but I'm telling you that in 30-some years of being a grown-up, that initiative is probably one of the biggest keys to my personal success in my faith, in my family, with everything that I do. Stop waiting for somebody to tell you what to do. Jesus is having this conversation, and this happens a few times throughout the Gospels, but there's one in particular, the beginning of the book of John, and Jesus is having this conversation with a woman that uh, the disciples, you know, they weren't going to talk to her. She was Samaritan. She was female, et cetera, et cetera. And Jesus rebukes them. He corrects them. And the first word that he uses is, look, 
In other words, you walked right by this woman and paid no attention to her. And he said, I want you to look around. And the metaphor that he uses is, I want you to see the world differently. I want you to see the world like it's a harvest field. And I want you to see yourself as a worker in that field. He is speaking identity and purpose into their life. I want you to see the world differently. I don't want you to see the world as a bunch of problems that you're trying to escape from. I want you to see the world as a bunch of possibilities that I want you to go get. Look, don't wait for me to tell you what to do. Go do it. You're sitting at a green light acting like you're at a stoplight. I want you to assume you're at a green light until I give you a stoplight. Initiative. Seeing what needs doing and doing it. I pulled up this uh, quote from Mark Cole, and I'll leave us with this. Mark Cole is the CEO of the Maxwell Leadership Institute. John Maxwell, who's been doing leadership conferences, uh, written tons of New York Times best-selling leadership books. This is a guy that talks to professional athletes, musicians, leaders, politicians. And this is what Mark Cole distilled from his time as CEO of the Maxwell Leadership Institute. He says, one of the key distinguishing marks I see in successful leaders, that's you guys, all around the world, every culture, everywhere we go, is a willingness to take, you know the word? Initiative. Number two, enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. <laughs> Rowan is already excited. Rowan exudes enthusiasm. Paul writes to the church in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, and he says this, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. I love the way that the Berean Standard Bible words it. Just, just soak this in for a minute. Tell me this isn't fantastic. The way the Berean Bible reads it is this. Whatever you do, work from the soul as to the Lord and not men. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Whatever you do, work at it from the soul. Work at it with all your heart. First, we take initiative. Then when we take initiative, do it, you know, go big or go home. Do it with enthusiasm. <clears throat> do it like you're happy about it. We had a phrase that we used at summer camp. We worked three, three summers, Annette and I, at summer camp. If you've never taken a, just a season to do some kind of youth ministry, children's ministry in kids' house, uh, junior high ministry, Christy could certainly use some people on her team. If you've never had a season of working with young people, they are unfiltered and they are unscripted. And I highly recommend it. Uh, we would get to the end of the summer and realize like we have been on go morning, noon, and night all summer. And yet we would get to September and we couldn't wait to do it again. And we had a phrase that one of our counselors, Karen, gave to us that very first summer. We kept it all three summers. And the phrase was this, camp is for the campers, not necessarily for the ease or enjoyment of the staff. We love that so much, I printed it out and I posted it all over the camp during staff training. Now, we took it down when the campers got there. We don't need to feed their entitlement. But I stuck it above 
the urinals. I stuck it on the doors of the women's bathroom. I put it in the kitchen. I put it in the nurse's cabin, stuck it on a couple of trees, put it in each one of the cabins. Camp is for the campers, not necessarily for the ease or enjoyment of the staff. And we really meant that. And we would talk about specifically what that looked like in our context. And so we drilled that into our staff for three weeks of staff training. Camp is for the, when we started Skeletones, that was our mantra. Skeletones is for the kids coming here, not necessarily for the ease or enjoyment of the staff. When camp would get going, not only do we have that in our thinking, but the other thing that went right with it is enthusiasm. And I used to tell our staff all the time, if you can't do it with enthusiasm, get out of camp. Don't stay here. We'll replace you with somebody who can be enthusiastic, right? I get that it's going to be like 6 a.m. wake up and it's going to be 1 a.m. maybe sleep <clears throat> and that you're going to be running on fumes every week for the entire summer. And here's the thing. You're going to love it. You're going to act like you love it. You're going to fake it till you make it. And I told him when, when we sing these camp songs, Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken, right? When we sing that song at the campfire, I know that the cool Cornerstone University kid in you is like, this song's dumb. And you're going to take that kid and tell him to shove it because camp is for the campers, not necessarily for the ease or enjoyment of the staff. You're not here to earn cool points. As far as your campers are concerned, that is the coolest song you've ever heard and you're going to sing it with enthusiasm when we have a rain day and we got to be indoors and off the soccer field and we put veggie tails in if you have opinions about veggie tails can it you're going to watch veggie tails with enthusiasm you know what that means that means when i put that tape in the vcr it was the 90s and it was a 501c3 nonprofit. we didn't have blu-ray we had a VCR. When I pop Bob and Larry into the VCR for the campers to watch, that means your role is if you like to talk to tomatoes, that's going to be your favorite song. <clears throat> Enthusiasm. And you know, we can get to Friday night staff meeting and then you can look at me and go, I hate that song. I hope I never hear that song again. That's fine. But in the moment, camp is for the campers. You want to be effective that's what this material is about, being effective. It's not about what you like, right? If I'm going to go fishing, right, like I'm not going to throw a cheeseburger on a hook, right, because I'm not catching me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bait the hook with what the fish want. If you want to be an effective fisherman, you're going to find the bait that the fish want, right? So enthusiasm. And the thing is, it worked. Every week, like by Monday, you see kids like, we're singing this song. But by Wednesday, they were like, bind us together, Lord. Like they even did the twang that we taught them to do. It was a beautiful thing. And it wasn't just about the songs. That enthusiasm from our staff, it spilled off onto the kids. And something happened, and they became engaged. And so when we got to the Jesus stories, they were already engaged. Like they'd let their guard down. They were having fun. Enthusiasm. If you want to be an effective Christian, you want to be an effective husband, an effective wife, an effective coworker, an effective business owner, effective at anything you do, first take initiative, right? Find what needs to be done and do it. And second, do it with enthusiasm. All right. Paul writes to the early church and he says things like, never be lacking in zeal but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. He writes to young Timothy and he says, Timothy, I just want to remind you 
I want you to fan into flame the gift of God that's in you through the laying on of my hands. See, there's a principle that Paul understood that we need to understand, and that is we get tired. Like if we didn't get tired, we wouldn't need God to say, hey, keep your spiritual zeal. Hey, you stir up the gift. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. You take initiative. You stir up the gift. You get yourself stirred up. I woke up with like five hours of sleep this morning, but do you see how I'm presenting material? Like if I came in here and talked like John Piper, I love John Piper, right? But you don't want to hear John Piper if you're like a little bit hungover or like, what? A, <laughs> you're not hungover, but right? Like there, there is an enthusiasm about what I do, <clears throat> but it's become a habit for me. I don't come in here and just like, open your Bibles. We're going to do the Lord's Prayer. Would you pray it with me? Our Father. I believe in this Jesus thing. That's why I have enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is not excitement or hype. Excitement or hype is like when you have to fake it. The beautiful thing about the gospel is we don't have to fake it. When you and I add enthusiasm to the gospel, all we're doing is adorning what is already there. Take initiative and do it with enthusiasm. Yeah, life is going to take the wind out of your sails. Yeah, you're going to be tired and wore down. The kids, the spouse, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, maybe even your pastor is going to wear you out sometimes. Like, man, I'm just sick of them. I want to quit. And Paul says, mm. God says, mm -mm. no, you don't let that thing overcome you. You overcome evil with good and you exercise zeal, fire, enthusiasm. Let that be one of the threads in the rope of your life. Go big, go home. Number three, highly effective Christians are people who live with open and honest relationships, open and honest relationships. So we were two, maybe three years into the church. Uh, we had just moved into a space. Uh, we had, because we're a small enough church, we just had a Sunday where we decided instead of uh, doing teaching time that we would just talk about what has the church, what has New Vintage meant to you up to that point. And this was probably one of my more memorable and meaningful moments in the 13 years that we've been a church. And Nick stood up. And one of the things Nick said was, I came from a church where um, what got you the points on the board, the social points, was if you didn't smoke, drink, or chew, or run with girls that do. And so uh, if you did certain things, uh, you had to hide it. And then he made the comment, and he said, what I've learned about this church is the only thing that will get you in trouble is trying to pretend like you're not that person. And the reason that was so memorable to me is because I was so hopeful. I thought, yes, Nick gets it. He sees the gospel that we're trying to present because we all came, a lot of us came from these churchy backgrounds where you got to kind of hide pieces of yourself. And if you were there in the early days, you know that we spent a good amount of time those early days on this theme alone about being open and honest, transparent. We looked at the fall of mankind's story. We looked at the Genesis 3, Genesis 3 story. And that by nature, because of Genesis 3, because when sin came into the world, we became hiders. 
And I came from a hiding household, and most of you came from a hiding household. <clears throat> Don't let them see what's really going on in the inside of you. Put your, your best foot forward, and then never let them see you sweat. Don't let anybody know what's really going on. Put those fig leaves, right? Cover up your shameful nakedness. Don't let anybody see that you're a little hungover, that you're addicted, that you've been looking at porn, that you've been lusting after the cute boy in the cubicle next to you, right? We keep all that like, well, we don't want people to see that. So let's just keep it manageable. Let's talk about what's God doing in your life? Are you reading the new Beth Moore study, right? Do you have my utmost for his highest? Yeah, I'm like on page 37. That Oswald Chambers, he's just so wise, right? And all of that's good stuff. And there's a place for that. But we can sometimes use those things to actually just be religious fig leaves where we don't let people in. We don't really relate on that real soul level, that we just relate on that surfacey, heady level. You know, we just end up just kind of spiritually talking about the weather. But people who are highly effective people, effective in their marriage, healthy in their marriage, effective and healthy uh, in life and in their faith are people that have open and honest relationships. Here's who I really am. Here's what's really going on with me. And that's scary. It's scary because you put yourself out to another person or a room full of people and you hope they still love you. And this is why we used to harp on people like don't try to fix it for people. Just give them breathing room. You're like, wow, sounds like you're really going through a tough time. Tell me more about what you're struggling with. So one of Jesus' best friends, his name is John. His nickname is the Apostle of Love. And he writes to the early church, and he says in 1 John chapter 9, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 9, and we've heard this our whole life. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't think the spirit of that is a formal booth and a formality of talking to somebody in a robe. I'm not against that if that's your background, your tradition, your faith, but I do think it's deeper than that. It's not about going into a confessional booth with your clipboard of all the things you feel like you did wrong that week. I don't know if that's the spirit of what John was writing. Instead, I think what John was saying here is, hey, in the midst of your relationships with other believers, when you mess up, own it, say it, be open and honest. Let us into the real you. Stop BSing us. Stop trying to make us think that you're such a great Christian because you're not. <laughs> Come on, I mean that kindly. I was just sharing with Rochelle on the way in this morning, and I even had a chance to demonstrate it in the hour that we've been here, that uh, I am still a man in need of a Savior. And I was sharing with her, like, just these constant judgmental thoughts I kept having at Goodwill here at the show last night. There were people, and I was back here with very strong opinions, like, yeah, we get it, you know, whatever. Like, and, and then I would have this secondary thought of, like, God, you're a dick. Like, like, I'm so judgmental sometimes. Like, my first thought isn't like, oh, isn't that adorable? You know, my first thought is like, hey, get a room. Like, no, we don't want to see that in Goodwill. Like, go, go away. And no compassion. Like maybe these two people just fell in love like Friday night and they're just like, oh, I'm just so happy to be with you. I can't take my hands off you, smoochy, smoochy. I, instead of rejoicing for them and being happy with them, I have to be that guy that has to have an opinion. I don't have to have an opinion. 
I'm still a man in need of a Savior. Now, here's the thing. I can talk about that because I feel safe with you all, spend enough time with you all, to be open and honest that I am still a man in need of a Savior, right? Like I admit, man, sometimes my first thought is not grace. Sometimes my first thought is criticism or judgment. Effective believers live open and honest. It doesn't mean that every person needs to know your story. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is the people closest to you do need to know your story. And within that community of people, like here at New Vintage, there should be two or three people that really know you, really know the dirt and the mess and what you're thinking about and what you're struggling with. Otherwise, you end up living life and I end up living life like we're trapped under ice. You can't breathe. You're scared to tell anybody what's really going on. It's not healthy and it's not Jesus. Highly effective Christians. This is just another thread to put in the rope here. If we take initiative, we do it with enthusiasm. And when it comes to our relationships, we're open. We're honest with one another about our failures and about our strengths. Last quick thought on that, and we'll move on. Paul has this kind of now famous conversation with Jesus. He's praying to Jesus, and he has this thorn in his flesh. And he's asking Jesus, take it away, take it away, take it away. I got this thing. We don't know what it was. Over the years, scholars have speculated uh, maybe it was blindness. Maybe it was a physical ailment. Some scholars speculate maybe it was persecution. He had some pretty heavy persecution in his life. Other people believe maybe it was a secret sin, and there are some scholars that believe, based on some of his other writings, that maybe he had some closeted sexual sin. He never says he doesn't let us in on that in the letter. All we know is there's something that's bothering Paul, and he likens it to a thorn in his flesh. And he says, Lord, take this away from me. In other words, I don't want to be like this. I don't want this thing, whatever this thing is. And Jesus doesn't do it. You ever been there? You ask God to heal. You ask God to bless. You ask God to deliver. And he doesn't do it. Instead, he gives him this answer. My grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. No, my presence in your life is enough. I'm with you in the middle. And he goes on to say, my power is made perfect in weakness. Yeah, you got a broken foot. That's, that's the way I want it. Yeah, you've got uh, mentally, spiritually, financially. Yeah, you got a broken foot. You got two broken legs. Yeah, that's a gift because now you have to depend on me. My power is made perfect in weakness. open and honest when we're open and honest we put ourselves in a place to receive power from others power from god strength from others hey we'll carry this burden with you we'll carry the load together take initiative we do it with enthusiasm we live open and honest with one another number four we forbear and forgive because when we're open with honest with one another we now open ourselves up to get hurt to get annoyed. Doing church online would be way easier. Just tune into some Andy Stanley, maybe have a Zoom meeting every so often, keep it light, surfacey, make some jokes, ha ha ha, you know, some armpit fart noises. We can log off and go on with our day. I'm just thinking back to previous living room group Zoom meetings during the pandemic. Anyway, in my early adulthood, and eventually you guys are going to get sick of hearing this name. But, you know, I lived with a young couple from our church, Joel and Lois Grove. And 
So there it was as, as an early adult, and uh, my rent was really cheap. It was like 35 bucks a week cheap. And um, I was out of work. I was behind in the rent, and I felt ashamed uh, because, you know, those last checks I got, I hadn't really saved for a rainy day, and I was blowing my money on stuff. And I carefully crafted my comings and goings from the house in a way to not interact with Joe and Lois because I knew they'd want to collect their 35 and then 70 and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that bill was adding up. And so I'd make sure to be out of the house when they were in the house and vice versa. And I just carefully avoided them until one Sunday afternoon, they came a-calling down to my bedroom door, my bedroom sheet, just a sheet that was stapled up to the rafters of the thing. And they literally, Lois would say, knock, knock, as she literally knocked on the sheet. It was adorable. And I thought, shoot, here it comes. They're about to collect. And at this point, I had run up probably 150, 200 bucks, which now doesn't seem like a lot. But back then, that was a ton of money that I didn't have. I fully expected Lois to come in and be like, hey, what the heck, where's the rent? We opened our home to you. We offered something nice to you. We've been open and honest with you. We've let you in, and this is how you repay us. You avoid us. You don't pay us. You shirk your responsibility to us. That's not what she said. That's what I was expecting. Here's what I got. Murph, are you eating? Uh... You know, my first reaction is always to just look down at my tummy. Yeah, yeah, I'm eating. And she said, well, you know, I went to your cupboard because sometimes we would exchange different ingredients and they were out of something. So they went to my cupboard that they had set aside in the kitchen for me to look to see if I had an ingredient. They noticed I had like a box of macaroni and cheese or something like that. That was it. And then they looked in my little spot in the fridge they had for me. There was nothing on the fridge. She's like, Murph, are you eating? I was like, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I'm rationing, you know, and I'm eating at friends' houses. And, and she scolded me. And she said, Murph, you have got to tell us when you are in need. See, I violated point number three. I wasn't open or honest with them. Instead of going and talking to them, saying, hey, I'm out of work. I don't have any money. And um, I'm kind of lazy. This was still when I was in those younger not really taking initiative days. So it's not like I was out pounding the pavement to find work. I had a roof over my head and I was kind of good to go. But I wasn't open and honest about that. And she chewed me out. And she said, we got a hot meal up there. This was right after they had Sunday dinner going. And she said, Mark Leach. Now she stopped calling me Murph. So I knew I was in trouble, <laughs> right? I was Murph when she walked in the sheet. She said, Mark Leach, you go up there and you get yourself some food. You know what that did to me? That ministered to me. I almost didn't enjoy the food because I was so like embarrassed, humbled. My grace is made perfect in weakness. God's provision is made perfect when you're to the end of yourself. What did, what did Joe and Lois do in that moment? They forbear. Forbear. This is a word we don't really use anymore. Uh, this is the way scripture says it. In Colossians chapter 3, the same chapter we just read from, Paul writes, bear with, or the King James says, forbear with. Bear with each other. Bear with each other. And forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. When Paul uses this word forbear, it means literally to make a decision to refrain from punishment. To make a decision. See, th this is why this is so 
when I say we can do this, like all this stuff, we can have this nailed before we get to the discussion in a half an hour, right? Like we can just do, we can just decide. You make a decision to refrain. You make a decision to refrain. You know what? I don't need to call them out on that. I don't need to correct them on that. I don't need to say something to them about that. I can just do it. We have these, um, we have these three little people that live in our home rent free. And from time to time, they make messes in the kitchen. Now, when I say from time to time, I mean daytime and also nighttime. <laughs> I notice I don't hear any arguing from the fourth row. There are times I will bring the kids back to the kitchen. Hey guys, let's get this cleaned up. That's a loving and wise thing to do. That's good parenting. You gotta teach them to take responsibility and do what? Take, what's number one? Right? So I'm gonna help them take initiative, which I think it violates taking initiative. But anyway, I want them to see it as a moment like, hey, don't wait for dad to come tell you to clean the cheese off the counter. You take initiative and do it yourself. Don't laugh too hard, Rowan. You're, you're going to be good for miles, I think. Now, here's the thing. Uh, probably not. Does it the work the other way around? Is, never mind. We'll talk about it during the discussion. So, but there are other times we don't call them back. There are other times I've come out to the kitchen and Annette is just cleaning up after one of the kids. Or they'll leave for school and they'll leave dishes on the counter. Some days we leave those dishes. They'll be here for you when you get home from school today. And there's other days we just decide to do them. That's forbearance. We don't tell them when they get home, hey, I washed your dishes for you. That violates forbearance. So let me add, let me just tack on an addendum here to forbearance. The uh, insinuation here is that this is to be done with cheerfulness. If you can't do it with cheerfulness and enthusiasm, it's not forbearance. I did the dishes you left in the sink last night. Praise Jesus. You left your socks out of the hamper again. Praise the Lord. Pass the ammunition. That's not how forbearance works. Uh, we're going to rub each other the wrong way sometimes. We're going we're gonna to make a mess. Uh, we're going to walk on each other. We're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to bump into one another. We're going to hurt one another. Sometimes we talk about it. Sometimes when it's a pattern, yeah, we got to talk about this because it keeps happening. And sometimes you just let it go, let it go. <laughs> why do we let it go? Peter tells us why. Peter says, man, I copied and pasted the wrong verse. Sweet. Good thing I know my Bible. <laughs> Peter says in 2 Peter 3, he says, God is patient with you. This is, this is how God relates. Can you imagine if God called us out on every little thing we did? We wouldn't be doing anything else. 
Sometimes you got to talk about it. Sometimes you may even have to forgive because it was an actual grievance. And some of it, you don't have to forgive it. It's not something to forgive. It's just something we put up with one another. The reason Nick and I are still friends because he forbears with me. The reason Annette and I are still married is because she forbears with me. The reason Rochelle is still here this morning after I pissed her off at 9.15 this morning. That's one of my spiritual gifts. It's <laughs> irritation. Uh, and we had a small talk before church started, but she forbeared with me. She even prayed for me up here before I came on. That's kind of a big deal, right? Because she could have been like, yeah, and I hope his tongue gets tied and his voice goes out. <laughs> Forbearance. Number five, effective Christians find common ground with other people. So there I was, I was 17 years old. I was a new Christian. I didn't know the right words, nor did I have the confidence to talk to my non-Christian friends, but I knew I wanted to share Jesus with them. I knew God was doing something in my life. I couldn't quite put it into words, and the words I could put into it, I was too scared to use. I knew how they felt about God and Christianity and the church and all of that. And what I did have was this. We all like hardcore music. We all like death metal. And so I would have a handful of kind of crappy Christian metal and Christian punk records and or cassettes. And I would make mixtapes for my friends. That was my way of finding common ground. Look, there's a lot we don't agree on, but there's some things we agree on. We're just two people that like death metal music. Our curriculum that Annette uses in Kids House is uh, from an organization called Orange. We've been using that curriculum for the most part since the beginning of the church. It's a brilliant curriculum. Orange comes under a lot of fire including one of the pastors at my old church. And I remember sitting outside of the arena in Atlanta at the Orange Conference with a couple of pastors from Blyfield. And one of them was adamant that this curriculum was leading people or distracting people away from Jesus. Because here's how our curriculum works. Here's how the Orange curriculum works. It starts with common ground, a virtue. If you have kids in kids' house, you can leave here every week and not only find out what the virtue this month is. Annette, what's this month's virtue? Respect. Respect. See, it's something we can all agree on. Atheists, Muslims, Buddhists, uh, Satanists. We can all agree. Respect is something we all agree on. We find common ground. It's like when Jesus says, be a fisher of men, let's cast those nets out as wide as possible and find common ground first. Now, there's always a one-line takeaway. So what is our one-line takeaway in Kids House this month? Respect is? Showing people, showing other things that matter to you. See? It's sticky. The kids can remember it. You can even download the app. There's info on our site, newventagechurch.org, and it syncs up with our curriculum, so it gives you cues. It's called Parent Cue, and you can ask your kiddos questions during the week about what they learned in Kids House on Sunday. I don't know if you knew that, but there's an app that goes with our kids' program. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And so here's the thing is that as the month goes on, it brings those nets into the person of Christ. It starts with patience. It starts with kindness. Oh, this is a virtue we can all agree on. And I remember kind of getting into one of my pastors and I, I might have swore at him a little bit, but he loves me and we're good. 
But I just said, this is, this is bull crap. Like, <laughs> we start with common ground. We don't start with Jesus. You want to be an effective Christian. You want to be an effective Christian at work. Don't start with Jesus. Well, the Bible says, blah, 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 blah. You just watch their faces and tuned out. But what you can start with is common ground. Yeah, we both think that's important. The whole thing, the whole ministry model behind Skeletones doesn't start with Jesus. It starts with music. We're just a bunch of people that like music. And we're just a bunch of people in the room that are listening to music. We'll start there and then see what God does. In Acts 17, uh, the book of Acts in your Bible, it records the early actions of the Christians, of the early church. And so we see Paul. Paul's this, this young convert to Christianity. He's planting churches, and he's a brilliant thinker. In Acts 17, we find him at this place called Mars Hill. Not that one, but that one, the, the original Mars Hill. Paul's at the original Mars Hill, and this is where all the thinkers and the poets and the musicians and the philosophers um, and the, you know, university heads, like this is kind of, this is like their NPR. This is where they're all hanging out, having a dialogue with one another. Paul joins up, and you can read it for yourself in Acts 17. He brings Jesus into the conversation, but he doesn't bring Jesus into the conversation by talking about Jesus. Instead, he finds common ground with them. He starts talking about their architecture. He starts talking about the statues that are in the town. Statues, excuse me, the statues in the town. He starts talking about their poems and their songs. And he said, I'm going to tell you what those songs are longing for. And then he moves into the gospel. But he starts with common ground. Ineffective people, ineffective people want to stand their ground. They want to stand their ground. They think it's us versus them. And if you don't believe me, wait till the next election cycle and then just click open social media. And how many Christians, Christian friends of yours, and maybe you, think that they have to take a stand, I have to stand my ground. I need to take a stand on issues like abortion, homosexuality, on, I don't know, what other, whatever hot button we have, you know, racism. No, ineffective Christians stand their ground. Effective Christians look for common ground. It doesn't mean you can't stand your ground in your personal life. It means if you start there, you will lose your audience. Start with common ground. Find the things we do agree on and build a bridge from there. Common ground. So we take initiative. We do it with enthusiasm. We live with open and honest relationships. We forbear and forgive because we're going to step on each other's toes along the way. We find common ground. Number six, effective believers talk about their faith. So there was a popular sentiment a few years ago. You saw it on bumper stickers. Uh, sometimes you'd see it on T-shirts, and it said, Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. Now, I understand the idea, because I think the idea was we have a lot of talk, but not a lot of action. So I think that whoever originally wrote that really honestly meant well. 
hey, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. I understand the sentiment. I'm not downing on the sentiment. I'm saying it's incomplete. Because eventually, the gospel always requires words. Our words are powerful. We're made in the image of God. God speaks in Genesis 1. Creation happens. God speaks and there's Jesus. Jesus is literally called the word become flesh. Words, as we see in the book of Proverbs, are like a tree of life. They bring healing. They can be like a sword. They can cut. They can uh, bring rebuke and correction and life. Our words are powerful. Effective believers, eventually, once we find common ground, we do talk about Jesus. Paul said in Romans 8, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to the salvation of everyone. The reason I'm sitting here for this morning is because Mary Mason talked about Jesus with me. And through that conversation, the power of that conversation, I became a Jesus follower. We use our words. For us as Christians, we live life through two lenses, like two lenses of two glasses. The first one is what's called the great command. Love God, love others. The second lens we look through is what's called the great commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. That's going to require you and I opening our mouth. Now, some of you are getting a little nervous because you're thinking about going to work tomorrow. I'm like, <gasps> just Start with common ground. Don't start with Jesus, but we do move the conversation eventually towards Jesus. I love watching Nick, and last night we had a new guy that just started for us, this guy Mike, and we've known Mike for a while, and it's so cool, like Mike's first night here, and he's already finding common ground with kids, and even in that first night, like his inner youth pastor came out, and he moves the conversation to Jesus as he sees the Holy Spirit opening those doors. We do use our words. Now, here's the thing about those words. Uh, we're the salt of the earth. Uh, we sprinkle salt. We don't dump salt. Do you see where I'm going with this? Don't Jesus them to death. <laughs> too much salt is too much salt. You don't have to find ways. What I'm not saying is try to work Jesus in every conversation. You'll lose your audience. But as there's appropriate, wise moments, you know what? This is a moment to just share my faith. This is a moment to share what God's doing in my life. This is a moment to share uh, whatever. You're going to have to use your words just sprinkled, just a little bit here and there. You'll be amazed at what that does in a conversation. I could have like a whole morning just on that. And now we get to the right verse that I copied and pasted from Peter. Peter writes this. He says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. He says, be ready for a conversation. Christians, be ready for a conversation. So we take initiative and we do it with enthusiasm. We live with open and honest relationships. We forbear and forgive one another because we're going to step on each other's toes and get in each other's way and have to clean up one another's messes. We find common ground with those outside of our tribe, and we use our words to share Jesus with them. And lastly, habit number seven, 
Effective Christians are generous. They're just generous. You know, when I hear these conversations over the years about what percentage of giving, you know, because tithing, that was an Old Testament law. And that was, you know, 10%. That was, that was Old Testament. That's the law. But, you know, New Vintage, you guys preach grace, right? Like, yeah. You know, the cool thing about grace is that that's 100%. <clears throat> when you read through the Gospels, like, you have been promoted from 10% to 100%. You are the bride of Christ. Like, there is no my bank account, you know, his or hers. Like, I ask couples this in counseling. One bank account or two. I'm asking for a reason because I'm going to give them the answer. The answer is one. One bank account. There is no more his and hers towel. There's just towel. <laughs> right? You can have his and her underwear. That's fine. Other than that, everything is now ours. There is no his car, her car. Right? It might be the car that you drive and the car she drives, but it's all our car. When you came to Christ, you are now the bride of Christ. There is no his and hers. It's ours. It's all ours now. It's ours. All of it belongs to Jesus. You cash it all in. So good news. The gospel just elevated you by 90% of your giving. But it's all God's. You, every penny and every moment is something you and I have been given to steward, to manage. Effective Christians understand that we can't outgive God. Effective Christians understand this basic principle that the reason we are generous and sometime, I think this year, I'm going to spend a whole Sunday on this, is because God is generous. Not was generous, is generous. Let's go through some of the words that Scripture uses to describe our Heavenly Father. These are going to resonate with you because you've read them. You've heard them. Lavished. Riches. Abundance. Overflow. Think about how much harm has been done to relationships around the world because of selfishness and greed, whether it's a political system or a personal system. It's not that we've stolen from other people per se. We just don't give to them. It's not that we've actively hurt them. We just do nothing. We just do nothing. But hear what Paul says. He writes to the church in Corinth and he says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. I could stop right there, take the offering and it should be overflowing because this is why I want to spend like at least a whole Sunday on this because the more Christians I talk to, the more Christians don't understand. They, they write this off as late night Christian TV, asking for money, twisting scriptures, but we're not. This is what Paul said. Let me read it again. Whoever sows, now what's Paul talking about here? When you read it in context, he's talking about money. He's, he's about to take up an offering. He's writing a letter to say, I'm coming to visit you in person, and when I do, I'm going to take up a collection so we can keep doing ministry. And he likens money to seed. It's a picture we see all throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. If you sow it sparingly, right? If I put out one seed, I get one tree. But if I put out a hundred seeds, I get a hundred trees. Farmer turned pastor Dave Dewell from Greeley, Colorado, once said this. Seed never leaves your life. 
it only enters into your future where it multiplies. So when I hear well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ say to me, well, yeah, I heard this uh, TV preacher, and he's like, yeah, if you give, like God's going to make you rich. That's not in the Bible. I'm like, man, I guess we see who hasn't been reading their Bible because it's everywhere. Let's read it again. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He's talking about money. And whoever sows generously, whoever gives generously, will reap, will get back generously. He goes on to say, each one should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not out of regret or compulsion, not because the pastor guilted you into it. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God's able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, all things, all things, every expense, every need that you have, that's what Paul's saying here, at all times, having all that you need. I feel like Paul's trying to drive home a point here. All, 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 you will abound in every good work. In other words, God's not going to leave you out to dry. He goes on to say, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your store of seed. Talking about money still. He's talking about your bank account. That's the context. He will increase your store of seed and will increase the harvest of your righteousness. When you read it in context, he's saying he's going to give you more money to be trustworthy with and he's going to increase your influence. That's the point here. That's biblical. Look, we see it everywhere throughout Scripture. This, this principle is a principle based on the person of who God is. You can't outgive God. If you're struggling to make ends meet, don't look at your budget as much as look at your giving. You're hoarding your seed. You're starving yourself. Look at the, the story of the widow in Zarephath in Elijah's day. Look at the parable of the talents in Jesus' day. He says, look, those of you who buried your talent, you were stingy with it. You didn't get any more. You lost a little bit you had. Right? Money talks. It's always saying goodbye. But those of you who invested it, meaning you invested it into the kingdom, into the lives of others, I will give you more. I'll give you more. To... Let's go to Proverbs, and then I'm going to wrap this up. This is what Solomon says. Oh, man, I forgot to copy and paste that, too. I know my Bible. Proverbs chapter 3. We've all heard it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. Well, how do we do that, Solomon? So glad you asked. This is what he says. Honor the Lord with your wealth. With the first fruits of all your crops, honor him. And then here's the promise. And then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Agricultural context. He's saying, I want you to be generous with your crops. I want you to give it away to people who can't give it back to you. I want you to take it to the temple. The priorities were always temple first, take care of the Levites, take care of the priests. Then I want you to take care of the poor. I want you to take care of the people around you. I want you to give it away. And when you do, I want to make sure that you have more. We'll spend some more time on that a different Sunday. So when we pray, give us today our daily bread. It's a communal thing. It's an us thing. It means everything that we need for today. Give us. Some of you are holding on to somebody else's blessing. Some of you, new vintage isn't where it should be because of your withholding. Some of you. I don't know who because I don't see the numbers. 
Some of you, you're held back in your own personal finances because you have withheld in your obedience to giving. Effective people are generous people. I'm going to leave us with Randy Alcorn, and we'll close in just a moment. Randy Alcorn, he writes this. What you do with your resources in this life is your autobiography. Are we truly obeying the command to love our neighbor as ourselves if we're storing up money for potential future needs when our neighbor is laboring today under actual present needs? Abundance isn't God's provision for me to live in luxury. It's his provision for me to help others live. God entrusts me with his money not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom in heaven. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. As I said at the top, these are not the only seven habits. These are just the seven. If you were to have coffee with me and say, uh, what has got you to where you're at? This is probably what I would tell you. I hope somewhere in here that you've maybe seen a thread that needs some work, a thread that you haven't had in your life, but you realize God's speaking to me, or maybe you're fighting with an aspect of this, and that's why we invite you to hang out afterwards so we can go a little deeper and have that conversation. So, Rochelle, why don't you come on up? Kevin, come on up. The rest of us stand and stretch. Thanks for listening to Pastor Mark's seven points of teaching. I can't remember the last time I sat in a stool this long or sat still. While they're setting up and unmuting, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, in just a couple of minutes, we will receive our offering. Not quite yet, though, Scott. Thanks for doing that every Sunday. Uh, and uh, we need more. That doesn't matter. Anyway, appreciate you. Father God, thank you that uh, you're walking us through this prayer and that we could see it with fresh eyes. And I pray, God, that we would um, hear one or two of these seven things that maybe your Holy Spirit is shining a light on this morning and that we would uh, wrestle with those. We would think about those, whatever those one or two or maybe all seven things are. Lord, I pray over our discussion that we're going to have in a few minutes and that you would be present in that discussion, that you would lead us closer to you and that ultimately your will be done, that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for what you've done for us, Jesus. And uh, we just give all this to you and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.